Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. Welcome to episode 25 here at the department. We're going to dig back into our records again, this time for the trends of the 2000s. <laughs> so, you know, Amanda and I got talking last week. We've been wanting to do the 2000s for a little while. Um, and we could probably easily do a whole season based oh, on the 2000s. Easily. When we started to talk about it, it's like, oh, what a time. <laughs> I mean, the memories that came pouring back. <laughs> We do have multiple episodes lined up based on the 2000s. We don't really have an, a cutoff time right now. Um, we do want to make sure we get to a bunch of these hot trends. Um, so just kind of, you know, go with the flow. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for more in this series before we get into it, you know, as a general reminder, we would love for you to follow us on Instagram. Uh, we share a lot of content, details, inside jokes. Uh, so you can find us at underscore the underscore department. Uh, we also have a really great website to reference. It's thedepartment.world uh, for all of our show notes and image references. Uh, and, you know, if you also are, if you're enjoying the show, it always helps us if you leave a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can just follow us on your preferred podcast streaming service and get updates and latest drops. And we also, as you know, we have a hotline you can call. I know some of you love to text us around Wednesday, Thursday, tell us your thoughts. Sometimes it's from an episode <laughs> that was like four weeks ago. And I can't remember. I don't know about you, Kim. But what if instead you called and left us a voicemail that we could listen to over and over again and share with our listeners? That sounds amazing, right? So you could call 717-925-7417. Now, as we mentioned before, we're sharing this number with my other podcast, Close Horse. So it is going to say, thank you for calling the Close Horse hotline. But it's also a way to reach us. And we have a couple messages already. They're not in this episode because, like, honestly, there's just too much to talk about in this episode. <laughs> yeah. But I promise we will be featuring them soon. So please call and tell us about your favorite memories of the 2000s or perhaps <laughs> something else we're going to talk about today is really going to get your goat. Call us. <laughs> please. That sounds really great. Um, well, before we get into it, you know, we always love to do a little soft open. And Amanda sent me one of the most exciting um uh, bring back product drops, uh, probably of this year. I mean, it's, I mean, we're only you know seventeen days into the year. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, Amanda, if you remember what, which, but I had brought this up only a month ago. I just sent you the Briars Vianetta oh commercial. How did we? Okay, I don't know how, but I feel like we made this happen because. Who uh -huh. has talked about the Briars Vianetta anytime recently? <laughs> they must have seen me 
trolling YouTube for their commercials. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, Vianetta's trending. We got to bring it back. I mean, the moment it's in stock here, I will be purchasing it. Oh, it, I have been looking <laughs> online. <laughs> I'm like, where? Because I don't actually remember if I ever, I think I might have had it at like a birthday, but they used to run those commercials. And it was during that time. And like, it was like the 90s, 80s, 90s, where everything was really all about, you know, luxury. If it's so elegant. Like, so it's like, you know, fancy feast and gray poupon. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. It is. I, and I'm, you know, I could be remembering this incorrectly because I haven't seen that commercial in a long time, but. I'm pretty sure it was served on like a crystal platter. Yes. Into crystal dishes. Yes. And so like that, yes. that is how elegant like, it is. Like fancy like feast. Like fancy feast. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I it is the fancy feast of frozen desserts. And so there is a grocery store out here that, you know, I had like forgotten about the brand Briars, which I feel like is how we started talking about Vianetta or something. And there is a grocery store out here. Um, it's called Shady Maple. It's the best grocery store ever. And they have like easily 100 flavors of Briars there. I like I it's like basically like a Briars flagship situation mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. So I think when Vianetta hits the shelves, it's going to be there first. I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm I'm actually looking at uh, good humor is being credited now for the Vianetta. And what? It, and the I mean, I'm on the good humor website and it is not the luxury experience we were used to the the product itself mm. looks like the same but it's got this like hokey good humor truck and the branding is really off like they should have got kept with the premium <laughs> yeah like sophisticated so I mean, sophisticated i do remember it being very lightweight mm. and like the chocolate was crispy ah oh, it's so good oh my god i'm going to have to try it just just beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm very excited to try the Vianette again. And one one more thing. Have you heard about these hot chocolate bombs? Listen, I don't know what they are. I'm going to be honest. You know how sometimes someone mentions something to you and you don't know what it is, but you're embarrassed to ask? Yes. Easily half a dozen people mentioned hot chocolate bombs to me in conversation in like November, December. Really? And I just would be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's awesome. I had no idea what they were talking about at all. <laughs> Well, you can you can buy them like you can get you can get really luxury ones like eighteen dollar ones from like you know Neiman Marcus, Whoa. or you can you know you can make them yourself and it's essentially it's like a hard shell chocolate mm-hmm. with um you know like little mini marshmallows and like sprinkles and stuff on the inside and you drop it into your heart hot chocolate. Oh, okay. Well, that's not as exciting as I thought. I. I don't know what I thought it was. I it was imagining it being somewhat like a bath bomb. Oh, you drink it. It's like an edible thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you learn something new every day. There was this meme that I love and it was going around last year and it was all about how this um uh, this this husband had found like a or was was gifted a bath bomb. And he tried it out and it just didn't dissolve properly. And it was kind of like really chunky and gross. And his wife looks at it and it's a cookie. (laughs) That's awesome. Like maybe that's where these like hot chocolate bombs came from. Is that meme? I just want to say something about bath bombs, which like, and I am treading with caution here because I know that they are very popular and I, there are people I love who are obsessed with them, Mm -hmm. but you know, I was at the mall 
I mean, this was obviously years ago. Like, what's the mall now? But I was at the mall with my friend Christine in Portland, and we went to Lush, and she bought some bath bombs. And she was like, no, they're awesome. These are my favorite. So I bought one, and I took it home. And it was, like, expensive, Kim. I want to say it was, like, 10 bucks or something. Yeah, they are. Put it in the tub, and it just was, like, it was no Calgon experience. I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. I was really disappointed. It didn't feel as luxurious as I thought. I mean, I come from a time period where – you know, your grandma and your mother tells t- told you not to take b- baths because they'll cause UTIs and things. So I, mm-hmm. I s- still abide by that logic, even though maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it because I was at, at like at any moment <laughs> something bad's gonna happen to my vagina. <laughs> I mean, I I haven't heard a bunch of like essays and you know Refiner Twenty Nine. I don't see is coming out with a bunch of like <laughs> like bath bombs ruining the pH balance of your vagina. I, I don't see that as like a thing. So I, I have a feeling that I'm just being told misinformation from, you know, you know, grandma. I will tell you this. It made my tub really dirty. And you know what? Like I would say that cleaning my bathtub is one of my top five yeah. least favorite things to do. So it was like all this extra labor afterwards. Like any, any chill vibes that I got from taking that bath were ruined when I was like scrubbing weird stuff like glitter and clay out of my tub so i mean who wants I, okay i get it i get it you know bathing with glitter but <laughs> i don't know i don't know anyway we've just alienated so many people so i think that's a great time to start talking about the odds <laughs> yes all right yes let's just, I'm, I'm very sorry dad if you listen to this yes. sorry Mr. we're gonna move on <laughs> he's already turned the podcast off with the v word so i know when i said it i was like ooh, like i try to say it as little as possible because i think of your dad I and i don't i want this to be a safe space for dads you know but it's just my because i feel like it's just my dad <laughs> not, many, not many other dads are going to be listening to this but uh, i mean i hope so um anyway so you know amanda and i came into our own during the 2000s. We're not going to tell you how old we are, but, you know, it basically made up most of our or all of our 20s. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously this series is going to be at least four or five episodes long. Um, and we did get some feedback that you all want us to cover a few more episodes on topics, to, you know, make sure we get more in there as opposed to just doing like just doing two episodes everyone's like well what what about more slumber party (laughs) i know we're gonna guys we thought that you might want to break and that we would come back to it so we have agreed that we're gonna see the 2000s through to the end and yes we will come back to slumber parties Mm -hmm. at some point it gives you a reason to keep going to know that it might come back someday (laughs) yeah i mean i have a feeling that we will not cover everything because there's always more trends to uncover Yeah. And the 2000s, it's oh. like peeling an onion over here. It is like the memories are coming back in waves. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. My. But, and then also looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and looking back and being able to really pull everything apart and look at it is fascinating. And seeing how they all intertwine together is also really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway. Um, so this is going to be really enjoyable for us, you know, um, so we're going to just try to try to go with the flow here. But, you know, obviously the aughts was a really epic time period. And, you know, Amanda and I both have a trove of fashion industry experience during this time period, um, which gives us, you know, a lot of reliable conversation pieces as we talk about 
you know, the different trends. Um, you know, Amanda, you know, as a reminder, Amanda worked at Urban Outfitters through a big chunk of this decade. Um, can you just do a, just a really quick synopsis just so everybody knows, you know, everyone's on the same page and understands, you know, where, where we're coming from? Sure. So I uh, moved to Portland, Oregon in 2002, and I could not get a job for the life of me. Like everybody, there were no jobs, right? And I went into the Urban Outfitters in town and I said, hey, listen, I worked for Urban Outfitters in college, which was in fact true. And they were like, great, you're hired. So I started working there and uh, I pretty rapidly moved from like a part-time seasonal sales associate to being a department manager. Um, I was recruited a couple of years later. I was the first person in more than 10 years who had been moved from the store to the home office where I began working and buying. And I worked for Urban Outfitters. I'm going to be really honest, a substantial chunk of my career, like what I, what made me a good buyer for all the other brands that came after that, I learned while I worked there. And so- They have a great training program too. They do. They do. And I feel like- I never had, you know. When I have, you know, gone to other jobs, met people whose career started at a different company, I am always amazed by how much more strategic and sort of like- financially confident I am when it comes to making decisions. And so I lucked into a career that I never saw coming and that I really enjoyed. Um, So I can tell you when we are talking about the aughts and Urban Outfitters at the same time, like that was like at the forefront of like fashion for young people at that point, you know, like it wasn't fancy or high end, but it was like, where trends blew up basically. Mm -hmm. And so I had to be really, really in the trenches of what was emerging specifically for like these younger customers who were in their teens or early twenties. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was like shopping for myself as a buyer there. So that's, that's kind of where it all started for me. And this was, this is a great time to talk about it because I feel like the company was on a high then. Yeah, it was. Well, in the 2000s, I was a self-described hipster for sure. I was a hipster before hipster was like. Yeah, totally. Like, totally. like a gross, like a super, super disgusting thing. I was trying to think like when did when did hipster become a bad term or a common term? And I do remember that my boyfriend, uh, I mean, I must have been like 20. We broke up and he, <laughs> maybe I was 21. And he told everyone we broke up. Because Amanda wants to pursue her career as a hipster full time. <laughs> and it was a burn. So I feel like that was maybe the earliest first time I'd heard hipster used in a really yeah. derogatory way. So yes, I am also a hipster, obviously, if you hadn't guessed already. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I think episode three of this, we will be talking all about the hipster. We have not. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's, gonna be it's so fun. 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 And we haven't done our research on it and to, to understand how that trend kind of changed and where why why the the word hipster like when that became like a really negative negative connotation um but there was a time period where it was just ba- because you were really into music and you you you, you thought differently it was like what basically was the first they the last counterculture you know that wasn't something you know that's like super extremist or something totally and i i would say in this episode and the next episode at the very least we're going to be talking about the more mainstream fashion trends the mainstream cultural landmarks of that time, 
these are not things that Kim and I were involved in. Like we were involved in it in that like we worked mm-hmm. in the industry and were aware of them and had to buy into them and find new product to support these trends. But like, I don't think either of us wore mm-hmm. any of the things we're going to talk about today. <laughs> but there's literally no judgment if you did because. <laughs> no, no, totally not. I mean, I think the aughts, there was such a huge disconnect it, both culturally and like style wise between hipsters and mainstream culture that has changed since then. Like, I feel like you couldn't listen to pop music in 2005 if you were a hipster, like you would lose all your friends and credibility. But now everybody loves Beyonce. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, it's changed a lot, but there was, I guess I would call it a lot more like tribalism mm-hmm. in terms of your interests and your style. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I, <laughs> I was a hipster. I was really into the countercultural trends. I was, you know, Amanda and I we lived in different areas, but we were very, very similar and, you know, aesthetic, aesthetically. Um, pretty much anything coming out of New York was was what was kind of driving my taste. Um, I had kind of a rock and roll electric clash thing. Um, I had a full fashion mullet, which I'll share during our hipster um, segment. It, I was featured in uh, the Wisconsin State Journal for my haircut in 2004. <laughs> um, and I'd gone to school for textile and apparel design at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then I worked at ShopBop because that's where it was founded. Um, and it was still owned privately um, way well before the Amazon acquisition. Um, and that was kind of the go-to place for contemporary fashion online. It was one of the first actually online retailers Um and it kind of appealed to the New York, New Jersey girl that came to go to college in Madison. And that's where it came out of. But the major brands that were blowing out of there was the Juicy Couture, Seven Jeans, CNC, Uggs. So while I was going to school, I was able to really, you know, kind of be immersed in this, this, these new emerging contemporary brands, which was super exciting, even though it wasn't my style. Um, but then I moved to New York to finish uh, fashion school. And I started working at a small boutique that became Oak, which was a well-known multi-branded retailer. It's not around right now um, anymore, but we carried the coolest brands, you know, Acne, Rick Owens, Alexander Wang, Subi. And I became the buyer there. You know, we had the coolest clientele, musicians, artists, actors, anyone kind of high profile coming through New York, you know, would shop at our store. You know, I was going to runway shows. I was traveling to Paris, you know, it was a very exciting time period, you know, particularly starting from Madison and then suddenly being, you know, in Paris and buying for um, a really well-recognized boutique. Um, anyway, so, you know, I definitely have a, have a slightly different reference point than Amanda, but we all kind of, it, the trends all existed in the same sphere, you know. Uh, so the 2000s or early aughts were a super, super defining time period. And it's kind of funny to think back that although it's only been what, you know, maybe, I don't know, 18, 20 years, but personal cell phones and texting all became possible in the early aughts, but it was still really, you know, r- rudimentary. Oh my God, um, T9, isn't that what it was called? We have to keep pushing the buttons on your phone and it would find the right letter. Oh, yes. <laughs> It was really hard to text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, forever. you had to press it multiple times. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. 
and it was all flip phones and things like that. Um, Friendster was also around at 2000 and then it went to MySpace in the mid part and then it went to Facebook at the end and Instagram, I think, kind of started right at the end of the aughts. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. 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 I would say like 2010 probably. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. I can't imagine a world without Instagram now. So I know. Weird. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, what's interesting to note is that the trends of the early 2000s are actually coming back for the younger generations. And Gen Z is embracing this millennium. They're all comfort watching old 2000s shows, you know, ones that maybe they watched when they were younger. Or ones that, you know, we obviously watched, um, the OC, Gossip Girl, Hannah Montana. Um, Those are being watched more than ever. And because of that, a lot of the kids are starting to pick up on the fashion trends that they're watching in these shows. So Juicy Couture, Uggs, low-rise jeans, even the trucker hats are seen trending again as nostalgia just continues to influence people's decision-making and consumer behavior. Uh, so, you know, obviously we mentioned we'll have a few episodes um, and we're really excited to talk about more. Um, but this one's about the celebrity fueled trends and brands of the aughts. Um, as a side note, you know, Amanda and I were the hipsters, so we did not participate in this, but we don't judge you. Um, anyway, so the 2000s, we saw a huge, might I say, obsession for the celebutante. <laughs> <laughs> And the celebutant is essentially a celebrity who is just, quote unquote, famous for being famous mm-hmm. or often a trust fund baby. So they're young. They're in their 20s. They're fashionable. They're notorious party girls and members of that high class society due to family fortunes. They fall into the realm of a celebrity for the sake of being a celebrity or socialite heiress turned celebrity. Uh, they're like America's princesses with massive fortunes behind them. So we're talking about Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, the Kardashians, um, Hills, people from the Hills. Um, and then, of course, there's some uh, you can call them celebutants that actually have some talent like, you know, actresses or pop stars like Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears, uh, most notoriously. <laughs> uh, what's most interesting is the amount of power they had to define trends and the American consumer behavior as well as lifestyles because of their sheer amount of press that came out about them. Paris rose to mass popularity in 2003 after a release of her sex tape. You know, Lohan was known for her antics. People love them and they love to hate them. They had lavish lifestyles and partied constantly. The drama, the excitement, and then the reality TV shows all fueled the demand. Yeah, I think you cannot talk about the aughts without talking about reality television. And you also can't talk about the style trends of the mm-hmm. odds without talking about reality television. Oh, and I it all goes together. It's so crazy. So the rise of the celebutant was really entangled with two important cultural phenomena of the early odds. And one was the gossip blogs, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about later, and reality television. Now, the idea of reality television didn't begin in the 2000s. 
We can all remember the real world and road rules from MTV in the 90s, as well as all kinds of other spinoffs related to those shows that were less successful. And there were also a lot of weird like dating shows in the 90s, like Studs. Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. So there was reality television, but it wasn't huge. For the most part, it was niche. It was either like on a cable network like MTV or it was like a syndicated thing. So it wasn't like on the major networks. A lot of people will argue, though, that the televised O.J. Simpson trial and all of the other media around it was basically the first time reality television was being created for the masses. I just watched the O.J. Simpson, the movie uh-huh. that was on, was on Netflix, and it was amazing. I know it's been a couple of years since it's been out, but I finally watched it. It's so good, though. It's so good. And, it, and it's all about, yeah, that nobody really realized that this reality could draw masses like people fascinated by it i mean it was like on tv all the time like Mm -hmm. the actual trial was on tv during the daytime like they preempted all the soap operas and whatnot and at night it was all of these like i i hate to call them news programs because they weren't they were like tabloid shows like a current affair and hard copy and things like that and all they did was talk about the oj simpson trial even more so I do think there is a direct line between the O.J. Simpson trial and the the era of reality television because, well, for one, you know, the Kardashians were involved. Yeah, exactly. Also, I just think it was like, oh, wait, people like real life or at least a presentation of what they think real life should look like, especially if it's about a bunch of wealthy people who live in like Beverly Hills or whatever. In the 1970s, PBS actually could be argued, they started reality television with this show called The American Family. And the show, or it was really more like a 12-hour documentary series, but it was it was like a season of the show. It followed the lives of the Loud family of Santa Barbara, California for the span of seven months. And over the span of this 12-part series, quote, Viewers watch dramatic life events unfold, including Pat asking for a separation from her husband, Bill. I know. And the bohemian New York lifestyle of their gay son, Lance. I have got to track this. I have never heard of this. It sounds so good because like, I I mean, I'm just going to say this now. I'm not a huge fan of reality television. Here and there, there are some gems, but mostly it's just kind of boring and dumbed down. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds riveting like it's more real this show was a hit for for as much as a show on pbs could be a hit like people fell in love with this family so by 2000 television producers saw that there was an appetite for reality shows after all you know the real world was still bringing in viewers cops was out Uh there uh there were all kinds of other related true crime shows they were very popular and of course you have to remember that game shows are actually reality shows too. Totally. And people love those. And you will see with some of the reality TV we're going to talk about and even some of the reality TV that exists now, they sort of blended reality shows with game shows. There were always games and challenges and whatnot. So Survivor hit the scene in 2000. And Survivor is, I mean, you know, I'm thinking it right now, at its core, a really long game show, right? Because there's a competition. You're right. Now, I have literally never watched Survivor. It's just not my thing, right? 
but I have certainly read a ton about it over the years and heard people talk about it. I've participated in conversations about it. And I do think it's important for me to add here before I continue talking about reality television that I have, I'd never actually owned a television until around 2015. So my exposure to television, especially reality television, has been primarily through, you know, copious amounts of media consumption, DVDs borrowed from my friends, things I saw at my parents' house, and occasionally illegally streamed content. That was like in the very early aughts where that was like a plausible situation. So I'm coming at this as like less a fan of television and more a fan of pop culture and pop culture analysis. Survivor was wildly successful. And it sort of legitimized this idea because Survivor was on a mainstream network. I want to say ABC. It kind of made the world, the industry, if you will, realize that reality television could be major network programming. Because like I said, previously, reality program was reserved for cable or PBS. But networks saw that millions of people would watch these shows. Like the appetite was so strong. And they were so much cheaper to make than a regular scripted show. For example, a single episode of Lost, which was a major hit of the odds, that cost $14 million to make wow. each episode. I know. Wow. Reality shows were just a tiny fraction of that. Yeah. And the budget was a lot more sort of controllable. Entire cable networks grew based on reality TV. The one I think of the most is the Learning Channel. I, re- I know. Became TLC. Yeah. I know. And it was just all reality shows, right? Because it was originally about learning things. I know. And then one day it was like, oh, Toddlers and Tiaras is on this channel. Yeah. You know, it, like, <laughs> it just like all kinds of other networks were created like under the Learning Channel, the TLC umbrella for all of this reality content. VH1 and MTV, if you were a small child before this and you don't remember this, let me tell you, before the rise of reality television, you watched videos of music. Right? (laughs) This era, MTV switched full throttle to reality programming and never has returned to music. where Where can you watch music videos now? YouTube. That's really, I guess that's probably about it, right? Oh my gosh, I remember that would be you know it would be like the same, you know, few videos that they would just kind of rerun over and over again. You just kind of keep watching them. <laughs> Do you remember the box? It was the like box. in certain cities, you could call in. It was a channel, and it was like on free TV, like not cable. Like if you had an antenna, you could get it. You could call in. It was like one nine hundred number. And request a video and you'd pay a couple of bucks to see it. And I remember I had a boyfriend, you know, he had a TV, but it only got like the local stations. So we would lay in bed, like all hungover and watch the box for hours. And sometimes it would play that video for Cisco's The Fong Song like 20 times in a row. Because that's all people were requesting. Oh my God. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway, there was so much reality TV launched in the aughts that I had, I was telling Kim, I had a really hard time to even know where to begin. I I could honestly do five episodes just about all the reality shows and we still wouldn't have covered it all because there are so many. It was basically like if you had a reality show concept, no matter how stupid it sounded, someone would give you the money to produce the season. 
it might not get renewed, but that's kind of, there were a lot of these like one season reality shows mm -hmm. in this era. So rather than, than dissect each of the reality shows, because it would take, you know, years off my life probably, I thought we could just talk about who got famous from them and our sort mm -hmm. of, you know, feelings about that, right? So obviously we have to start with the queens of the celebutants, Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, real life best friends who became household names and fashion icons with their MTV reality show, The Simple Life, which ran for five years. Did you ever watch this, Kim? I watched a couple of the first. It, it was really kind of dumb, you know, but it was I know dumb. that it was insanely influential, though. Oh. Like, people didn't don't realize how influential it was and how much it built Paris's star, Paris and Nicole's stardom up, even mm -hmm. though it was, just, you know, dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> I've heard it's streaming right now, so this might be a chance for people to check it out. So basically, these two best friends holed up in a small town in America, and they worked a series of, like, average Joe jobs for five seasons. The key, like, comedy of the show was watching these two totally spoiled rich girls doing a variety of extremely unsocialite-like tasks from milking cows to working drive throughs People loved it. Like I said, it just... Mm -hmm. It's nice to see a clip here and there. I'll be like, ha, 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 but like a whole hour of this is too much. It also birthed their two iconic catchphrases, that's hot and loves it. And <laughs> I kind of am ready to bring back that's hot, I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like you should make like a clueless phone, you know, when we <laughs> press the button instead of saying whatever, it says that's hot. That's hot. Didn't she like get it um... – uh, like what is it? Trademark or yeah, something? Trademark. She got I think she might have because she, Paris Hilton is a brilliant businesswoman. Let me tell you, she, I think she played dumb on the show. She's actually super, super smart. Mm -hmm. The fashion on this show was horrible. Like I cannot say that enough, but mm -hmm. it definitely started all of the terrible trends that Kim is going to talk about. And I, I wondered like. If I were Paris Hilton in 2020 and I looked back on the the uh, simple life, would I be embarrassed about what I wore? Nope. She says, quote, I love 2000s fashion. I love the bedazzled sparkle fabrics and all the juicy couture tracksuits. I loved when Nicole and I had our outfits matching. We would plan outfits a lot of the time. There's just so many looks that I really love. And I will tell you, if they wore something on that show, yep. we were copying it at Urban Outfitters immediately. Like I keep thinking – those like tube top baby doll dresses, you yeah. know, and yep. bondage hats and all this. We're going to talk about it, but it, it it's just so funny. I think it, I think the one thing that was really successful about this show is that even though these girls were super rich, the clothing they wore on the show for the most part was really accessible. And I think that's why it launched these huge trends, just massive. Paris Hilton, you know, came into the world with an extreme amount of generational wealth, as did Nicole Richie. Her father is Lionel Richie, the 80s pop music star. So it's hard to say what her life would have been like without the simple life, but it did make her a style icon of the aughts. And you say 2000s, I see Paris Hilton. Yes. Like immediately, right? She found herself a star of reality shows and a sex tape in Vogue and Vanity Fair and basically every highfalutin fashion magazine that was out there. Her book, which was called Confessions of an Heiress, 
was a bestseller in 2004. She even got into music, releasing an album called Paris. And she, to this day, has made billions, that is not an exaggeration, billions with a B, off of endorsements and her own product lines, which include 18 different perfumes, 18, Kim, which have resulted in $2 billion in sales. That means at least one of them did really well enough for her to make more. I know, 18 of them. She has... 56 branded stores in the Middle East and Asia selling her line of Paris Hilton handbags. And she's got 16 licenses across the categories of clothing, accessories, beauty, and watches. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I cringe to see what they look like. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. Because I did Google the perfumes today and the packaging and the bottles are like, it's like a time machine. Mm. Like, there's no blanding, let me tell you. It is full <laughs> on odd. It's so wild to me. Now, here's a reality show that I did watch and I loved, The Osborne. Yes, I did watch that one. It was so good, right? Yeah, it was hilarious. I was able to get the DVDs from the Portland Library. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, yeah. Uh, ostensibly, Ozzy Osborne was the star of the show, but he was actually like a really minor character. And it really made his wife, Sharon, and their other kids, Jack and Kelly, like major stars to this day. It's also important to call out, which I just found this out a couple years ago, that there's a third Osborne kid, Amy, who did not participate in the show. And it's weird thinking back on the show because they like don't mention her at all. It's like she doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But I also read that she's really upset with the way her family behaved on the show. So I I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. I can can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's a star who came up in the early aughts thanks to reality television that I bet no one's thinking about, Guy Fieri. Oh, yes. I mean, diners... Drive-ins and dives is on constantly at my parents' house whenever I go home. So I definitely watch that. Yeah. I mean, that guy was launched, I want to say, in 2005. And you probably don't think of him as a celebrity of the odds. You probably think he came in from a time machine from like 1990. (laughs) (laughs) He he got his launch in the odds. Yeah. Was it Diners, Dive-ins, and Tribes? Did that launch in the odds? Yeah, that's what launched him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. That, that's how your parents are able to watch it all the time. There's a lot of back catalog. It's <laughs> a lot of it. Um, I will say the last time I flew into Burbank, which has been like a year oh, now. I know exactly what you're going to say. All the restaurants in the airport are Guy Fieri restaurants now. It's so weird. And they all have faces on, like there's like TV screens with his show on, on a loop. Yes. So bizarre. I got, I want to know so much about that agreement. Like, how did that happen? I've never been to an airport where every restaurant was owned by the same person. It's really fascinating. I mean, it's a small airport, but still. (laughs) Okay. So how about Nick Lachey of 98 Degrees and Jessica Simpson, whose line Uh of clothing and shoes is still going strong. They started on Newlyweds, Nick and Jessica on MTV from 2003 to 2005. And I don't know if it really did much for Nick Lachey, who even talks about him, but I think it made Jessica Simpson a household name. Absolutely. This show is most legendary for the scene where Jessica Simpson is confused about whether chicken of the sea is chicken or tuna. 
Oh, right. It was like the the dumb, the dumb bimbo kind of thing that was kind of hot then. Yeah. Yeah. I will say uh, there's a podcast that I love called You're Wrong About, and they did a chapter by chapter uh, dissection of her recent memoir. And it really, I mean, I just, I think I'm a mega Jessica Simpson fan now. Like not her music, which is who she is. She's really cool. Um, Here's a fun fact about this show, which blew Dustin's mind when I told him. The show was originally conceived from Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley. I'd already oh forgotten that they God. were married. Yeah. To be a fly on the wall I know. in that relationship. I, know. I think Dustin and I were like, wow, I can't believe they didn't like carry that forward. And I was like, I think that they realized there was no way they could act like a regular married couple for like six months of filming. Because that yeah. was super weird. The success of Newlyweds in particular in terms of building Jessica's career was so massive that it sort of set the precedent for using a reality show as a vehicle to fame. So it's no surprise that Jessica's sister, Ashley, aka Ashley Simpson, also Mm. had her own short-lived reality show that followed her as she recorded her first album. Oh, gosh. Okay. I don't, I don't remember that one at all. I saw a picture. I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember. I mean, like, I never saw it. It was also on VH1. A lot of these were on VH1 or MTV, whatever. They're, like, all the same at this point, right? Speaking of reality shows that made people household names, Laguna Beach launched the, what yes. I would call, in quotes, careers of Lauren Conrad, Stephen Coletti, and Christian Cavallari, and all of their other, like, high school rich kid drama and friends. The cast later migrated to The Hills. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to tell you, I tried to watch this show because this was a show we would talk about all the time at Urban. Like some someone had worn something, blah, blah, blah. We got to try to get this LC style going on. I found it so heavily and obviously scripted, like, but with like really, really bad acting. It just was not watchable for me. I just could not handle it. It was no. so terrible. But people still talk about it. I couldn't get behind the people and the personalities. No. So there was, just, there was just, it was so disgusting to me. I couldn't watch it. Now, the girls next door made celebrities out of Hugh Hefner's three girlfriends, oh. Andrew Wilkinson, Holly Madison, and Bridget Marquardt. I'm not going to talk too much about this here because I'm going to be talking about it a lot more when we get to the raunch culture of the aughts. But I will say that this show also made Playboy and Hugh Hefner more, I don't know, like culturally wholesome to middle America, kind mm-hmm. of like destigmatized Playboy. Um, Even though I, he had like three girlfriends. <laughs> I have seen a couple episodes of this show um, and it was really weird. I mean, like, I think he does sleep with all three of them. I don't know or did. It's very, very strange. Um, but they're all really nice girls and there's never like any cattiness or anything like that. And those, they're still, you know, they might be like E-list stars at this point, but people people recognize them as celebrities, you know? And then there was this phenomenon and it kind of go back, it goes back to what Kim said earlier about just being famous for being famous, you know? Like, fame for fame's sake. While some shows could turn someone into a major celebrity overnight, others just sort of created, like, these D-list reality guests, for lack of a better term. One example I can think of is a woman named Megan Hauserman, who, like, made the rounds in the aughts. 
She began <laughs> on a show called Beauty and the Geek, which I have never seen. It was on, I want to say ABC. And it was basically I like they I would they would partner nerdy guys with like, you know, babes. And they would like compete to win, right? It was sort of like a game show, but it was also a reality show. Am I missing anything here? I didn't watch it. I, wa- I remember the commercials and just being like, oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the kind of garbage. They were just like literally trying everything. So she was on that show. And then she was a very popular villain on Rock of Love, which Ooh. is my all-time favorite reality show, which I'm going to talk about a lot more in our raunch episodes because it's like so raunchy. She was so popular on Rock of Love and she was like unbearable. Like just I we rewatched <laughs> the show a couple years ago and I was like, oh, what a garbage person. But I'm sure she was acting 50%. I found out that yeah. she has a degree in accounting. So surely some of this was a put on because she would act like kind of stupid and mean on the show. Uh, she then went on to another show called I Love Money. Then she was on Rock of Love Charm School. And then she finally made it by having her own show, Megan Wants a Millionaire. Wow. What garbage. How much garbage? <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. Like there was a lot of this. There was a uh-huh. lot of this where like people would go from show to show. And the next one I'm going to tell you about is a really good example of that. So there was a, another reality show on VH1 called My Fair Brady. And it was two or three seasons. I have had the unfortunate displeasure of watching a marathon of this one time at my mom's house a long time ago, like when it was actually on the air. So in the aughts, it was kind of like a mega reality show in that it combined a star of a previous era, which was Christopher Knight, who played Bobby Brady on the Brady Bunch. And he later appeared on The Surreal Life, which was a VH1 show about basically like washed up celebrities living together in a house and it was all kinds of people right Uh uh-huh on the surreal life he met another reality show person who was a winner actually it was adrian curry who won america's next top model in 2003 so they met on the surreal life they allegedly fell in love and so Mm -hmm. they went on to have their own show which was my fair brady It was so unbearable to watch. Like, what an unhappy relationship. Mostly it was like Adrian trying to convince Chris to get married. Then they do. And then she's trying to convince him to have a baby, which he doesn't want to do. And he's like significantly older than her, like at least 20 years older and just not really wanting to have kids and settle down. And I just remember one scene in which to get what she wanted, she decided she was going to do a really sexy car wash to get his attention where she put on like a bikini and like something else and was out there washing the car and like spilling water all over herself. She was wearing like stiletto heels and stuff. It was such (laughs) trash camp. They, no surprise, later divorced after being on Dr. Phil in 2013. I mean, yeah, you're just like rewriting the the fame wave of reality. But it's like this weird theme. it's a weird frame, frame and it's it's usually just scripted and it, it was just, yeah, it was like non-reality. So I want to, there were, like I said, there were hundreds of these shows, but I wanted to just, I'm going to tick through a list. If one catches your fancy, you might want to jump in here. Some of these are kind of iconic. This one's not, it was called Date My Mom. You set up your, it was on MTV. You would set up your mom with men. 
two seasons somehow. Uh, Punked, which was Ashton Kutcher's prank show. Pimp My Ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Anna Nicole, Anna Nicole Smith show. And that this is the this was the decade that Anna Nicole died. Yeah, too. yeah. And I she remember, was really sick, and then she died. And she was like way out of it on the show, like famously mm-hmm. just like fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter. I never understood that, but okay. Me neither. Fear Factor, which fun yes. fact, yes. our friend Hayden, he wa- he was a winner, and he yeah. used that money to launch his own business, which is a clothing company. I think he had to like eat cockroaches. Yeah, he had to do some gross shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Hogan Knows Best, which was about the Hulk Hogan family. Mm-hmm. L.A. Inc., which launched Kat Von D to fame. Um, Temptation mm-hmm. Island, this is one I actually loved, where like couples who were having problems would go to this island, be separated, and then introduced to all kinds of sexy singles to see if they could handle the temptation. Uh, <laughs> trading Spaces, that was on forever, where you would like – go over to your neighbor's house and they would come over to your house and they redecorate one room and everybody was always secretly angry at one another when it was all over. <laughs> a wife spot swap one too. Oh yeah, right? wife swap. I can't even, I didn't even put that on here. There's a lot of swapping mm-hmm. in this era. Uh, what not to wear when oh, I like that one. Uh, I would, I would. Queer Eye. This is when Queer Absolutely. Eye started. Um, Absolutely. This one was interesting and I kind of would watch this. Room Raiders. This show let one single guy or girl meet their prospective dates by poking around in their bedrooms unattended. It's kind of interesting, right? Wow, yeah. There was another show called Mr. Personality that was on for one season in 2003. A bachelorette would be able to choose suitors based on their personalities, though she could still see most of their faces and bodies, so it was kind of pointless. But it was still kind of creepy. And Monica Lewinsky hosted this show. Yeah. Um, there was also the Salt and Pepper show, which I loved, and it was actually really good. But one of them was like super religious and ended up quitting the show because of that. It was a bummer. It was a really good show. Um, this one's super disturbing. It's called The Swan. It was where women were given tons of plastic surgery. They were put on crash diets. They got some veneers, et cetera. And then they participated oh in a beauty God. pageant. Yeah with the other contestants. I actually read a really sad article a while back about how all of the former contestants struggled afterwards with chronic pain, mm. the end of their marriages, anxiety, and like, not surprisingly, rapidly deteriorating plastic surgery. It basically like mm-hmm. ruined their lives. It's like The Biggest Loser, where all these people suffered from major like eating disorders and like all this insane, in, insane b- because of the, the stress that was put on them to lose this weight so uh-huh, quickly uh-huh. and the trauma that they went through because, you know, like Jillian Michaels screamed at them and like all, all of the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's safe to say that 99% of the reality shows of this era were really fucked up. I mean, uh, do you remember the pickup artist? That's uh, another VH one. One that was so so uh, shocking that it existed, where it was like this this guy who wore these <laughs> insane like aviators and like crazy hats. And I actually dressed up like him for for Halloween. Wasn't his name? Am I making this up? Was it like mystery or something like that? It is. It was mystery. I went like I went as him because I thought it was so insane for as Halloween and everyone just thought I was a pimp, which <laughs> technically 
I was, you know, like they, they, he basically like taught all uh, these kind of nerd guys. He had a book about how he had these like secrets of picking up women, which was a lot of it was just like um, uh, making them feel bad and like using all this really messed up psychology. Anyway, that was like such a fascinating reality show to me. Um, I remember the thing, like that's where I heard the term negging, where like yes. you go to a woman and like be, say oh, something yes. negative to her right away, like to make her feel oh. bad about herself. And then you could turn it around and make her want you. And also, I just want you to know that this guy also had a soul patch. I think that's really important to call out. Yeah. He did have a soul patch. You're totally right. <laughs> oh, yeah. What a gross, gross time. Uh, I mean, can I mean, the the just the the insanity of how many reality shows? And I remember there was always like, like the like kind of jokes about oh you no, know, everyone's got their own reality show, and like all the celebrities would you know like you see it on like Saturday Night Live. It kind of turned into that, and I would say specifically because of MTV and VH1 basically saying now we just show yes. reality shows all the time. I mean, all those spinoffs that that Megan woman was on, all VH1. Yeah. Like the demand for so much content to be aired and constantly new things to keep ratings up, I can only imagine. Yeah. And I mean, you have to remember that like, I mean, I don't know if VH1 even exists anymore, but MTV still shows primarily reality programming. I mean, there's a whole other generation of reality shows on MTV that came after that, like, you know, like Teen Mom and whatnot. Yeah. So they're still they're still going strong with that. Um, there was one other show I wanted to call out, which was called Next, and it was a 2005 speed dating show, also on MTV. And I got this screen cap of one of the contestants. Her name was Ashley, and the fun facts about her were that she collected Starburst wrappers, like Starburst candy, idolized Bob Barker, which uh I can understand, and pooped in a box and mailed it to her ex boyfriend. It's so classy. This is the kind of it was like, you know, I I feel terrible saying this, but I mean, the speculation out there was like, how much lower is reality TV going to go? And it just kept going lower. I think it has rebounded significantly since then. We're not having shows where we give women like thirty five plastic surgeries, you know, and then have them compete oh. in a beauty pageant. But like, you know, it was there's still weird stuff going on, obviously, but like it was really bad back then. Because it was just like, let's just try it all. And like the actual celebrity rags, like the magazines you get at the grocery store, like like the sales on those were so insane and so heavy. And it was basically like a reality program where people, they were making up stories. It was like mm -hmm. Brad and mm -hmm. Angelina, like, oh, let's, let's chronicle Britney Spears meltdown. And she's oh. melting down because she's being followed by the paparazzi. Yes. Like the demand yes. on these celebrities- to, to, to be reality stars. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, that was definitely like critical mass of the paparazzi as well. And it was mm -hmm. one of the reasons so many celebrities struggled at that time. But it was just like, there was, television was still really important in a way that it isn't now. But we also had the internet and we also had magazines. Slowly mm -hmm. over time, internet kind of killed off magazines, killed yeah. off television to a certain extent. But at that point, there was such a need for so much content yeah. to serve all these channels that it was like, make every show, follow every celebrity, harass them nonstop, create your own stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, it was insane. And you know what? Even today in 2021, reality television is still going strong. There's all those Real Housewives programs for one and all these networks like TLC that was once the learning channel, they all are showing reality program 24 hours a day. 
I mean, Netflix is trying, you know, tries out some. Mm-hmm, I don't know how mm-hmm. the cooking shows themselves are reality. Like yeah, you're saying. It's totally. And Bravo is basically a reality channel. There are blogs, Instagram and Twitter accounts, YouTube channels, mm-hmm. et cetera, that are all based on recapping and discussing reality shows. Like there are people whose entire identity is their feelings on the Real Housewife franchise, you know? Yeah. Reality stars are now like legitimate household names and they find their lives chronicled regularly in People and Us Weekly week after week. Like I don't know the last time you picked up an Us Weekly, but I knew almost none of the people in it because I don't watch any reality shows. Oh, interesting. So, oh, that is, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when, you, when you're looking at like a British, you know, gossip magazine, you're like, I don't know who they're talking about. <laughs> you yeah, know, they're not, yeah, they're not popular that's, that's how it is in Us Weekly. And because I'll like be like, who the fuck is this person? And then I have to like Google their name and I'm like, oh, they're like a real housewife of Utah or something, you know? <laughs> you're like, how are they being featured in a celebrity magazine, you know? Yeah, they're like, they're famous for being on reality shows, which is like a yeah. weird that didn't exist before this century. It's such a strange career to be like, I'm not exactly an actor, right? It's like, but I have a show where I sort of am acting, right? Yeah. It's definitely scripted. Yeah. Well, I'm going to jump into some fashion trends. And, you know, as we're talking about this kind of celebutante and the celebrity and the reality, you know, um, one of the most important parts of you know, defining the trends was that department store Kitson that was based in LA where all of like the celebrities were, or they traveled. Um, and it was, you know, considered the epicenter of celebrity culture in the two thousands. Kitson was a hot spot for all the celebrities and the paparazzi that followed them. Uh, it was basically a symbiotic relationship for everyone. You know, Kitson was the go-to shopping destination for the LA glitterati, um, that birthed this celebrity defined fashion, culture, and style. The flat that that Robertson flagship store was splashed across the pages of every single mm-hmm. style blog and gossip rag with all of the hot people so, like Paris, Nicole, Jessica, Lindsay, the Kardashians, the cast of the hills, climbing out in heels, carrying at least five bags. You know, they had those glass windows so so the paparazzi could basically just shoot inside the store and shoot any of the celebrities i mean that was a place to go you know i'm sure there was like lots of hot tips of like oh paris is going to kitson you know and the paparazzi go i i remember reading this like a long time ago that they would call the paparazzi and call them there because like this was the time of paparazzi you wanted to be in these magazines like that was that was going to build your fame and the more you were in and the more you know the more you riled up um, your celebrity friends and had like fights and things the, the more you got featured because they needed that they needed that um that storyline the plot line of of the of of being fueled by kind of like you know trivial <laughs> personal details sordid details supposedly um so you know kitson opened in 2000 the post 9 11 trend was ostentatious, loud, gaudy, kitschy. And, you know, it was already basically leading up to that. Um, it was compatible with the logo mania and conspicuous consumption that we saw in the early 80s. Uh, denim and knitwear really blew up, which we will talk about 
in other episodes. We're not going to totally talk about it all right now. Um, and casual chic was just really trending. Kitson became the go-to spot for the hottest new brands and trends. Mind you, in the early 2000s, um, this was kind of the start of this contemporary and indie brand explosion. Before then, the average consumer shopped at Gap, J. Crew, Urban, uh, Delia's, if you wanted a catalog and were younger, or Macy's, Kohl's, and Pennies. Uh, this all started to change. <laughs> Pennies. Um, that's what my mother calls it. So um, this all started to change in the new millennia. And Kitson was always looking for the hottest newcomers and the next it brands. You know, they really helped to launch lots of these young companies mm -hmm. and, you know, create trends from ob obscurity once the celebutants started to wear them. These were the same people walking and wearing statement outfits on the red carpet and mo more notably the MTV Movie Awards where celebrities brought their looks because it got them featured. Um, interestingly, these contemporary brands were, yes, expensive for what the consumer was used to, but ultimately just kind of affordable or a light splurge. So now you, yes, you can wear the dress, the, the outfit, the t-shirt, whatever, that your favorite celebrity is wearing. Um, and a lot of these trends were just basically casual comfort wear. Jeans, jumpsuits, t-shirts, those, you know, Ugg wool boots. And that really helped fuel the sales. Like Amanda had said earlier, you know, comfort and accessibility. Um, so Kitson had all the hottest brands and merch from teen and team Aniston baseball. Oh, <laughs> I forgot about those. <laughs> to Beverly Hills camp and most notably Juicy Couture, which could be considered some real tinder to the start of the athleisure movement. So Pam and Gila launched Juicy Couture in 2001, adding, I mean, it's the, the, the line Juicy had been around for a while, but Juicy Couture came around, <laughs> um, adding Couture at the end because as Pam said in an interview with Page Six, and I quote, Everything had to be more luxe, more expensive. Such so as shows what an age of excess we were in then, if you remember, you know. Um, even though it was kind of an oxymoron since velour jumpsuits are anything but couture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's what made it kind of funny, you know. Yet they approached this outdated garment. I mean, remember, the velour jumpsuit was favored amongst mobsters and was featured mm -hmm. often as a costume on the set of like, you know, the Sopranos. Also but an they, odd show. That's a good one. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so they approached it differently, which a lot of brands did. Um, and they focused on fit. Mind you, well-fitting product was actually not that particularly common before the odds. <laughs> uh, Do you remember how ill-fitting everything was in oh the gosh. 90s? Especially like jeans and pants. Terrible. terrible you just had to like hope for the best basically it just covered your lower half yeah you yeah. know you were at least not naked um <laughs> juicy featured a trendy low rise um and they fit it with accents and seaming that was meant to accentuate and flatter most everyone except you know obviously if you had a muffin top you know uh yeah. <laughs> that just that's important that's the important part Accentuated the muffin top, uh, but that that's with every low rise item. Um, but they weren't the first to do 
this kind of redo on the velour jumpsuit slash tracksuit. Actually, Baby Fat um, did. Kimora Lee Simmons' line did it first and feminized the velour tracksuit and actually started to popularize the trend of words emblazoned with rhinestones even before Juicy Couture. But wow. they made it, Juicy made it more accessible to kind of to everyone. J-Lo was gifted a pink set of Juicy Couture um, tracksuits. And j- just to lounge around in. And she loved them so much that she wore them in a music video with Ja Rule. And that was when music videos really meant something, you know, like we're talking about where MTV was playing music videos all the time and okay. they could actually drive trends. So Paris Hilton essentially became the poster child for Juicy Couture and literally to this day has a, fa- a full closet full of them. I think she, there was like a point where she owned over a thousand Juicy Couture jumpsuits. Wow. Now she owns about a couple hundred different sets. Um, after being featured on with on Paris during her Simple Life reality show in 2003, all the other celebutants started to wear them, with the baby pink being the most iconic of all colors. When the tracksuit debuted during the spring of 2001, the pants sold for roughly $80 and the top was about $75. The price point accomplished two things. It was expensive enough for people to show off a little wealth and status, but affordable enough for the working class to afford. You know, we've talked about this. It was actually affordable luxury. Juicy Couture was a sign of status. You were in with the in crowd and A-listers if you wore the Juicy Couture. I mean, you can imagine how many Christmas gifts this was given to teenagers. (laughs) And like college students, you know? Because it definitely, it's a splurge. Um, so from a page, that page six article, um, and I quote, Pam Nash Taylor pointed to the constant trail of cameras that followed Juicy's biggest celebrity fans as a major factor in the brand's success. And I quote, now you look on your Instagram and you see what's happening, but then it was all about the paparazzi culture. We used to have a wall of fame and a wall of shame in their office. It was all the celebrities that were wearing Juicy and then all the celebrities that were going to prison in Juicy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You know, and they had interns that would go out every single week and pull all the rags. They'd cut out all the pictures of like the aspirational ones, like Gwyneth going to yoga or walking around, you know, with a Starbucks cup. And by the way, Starbucks kind of, that's when Starbucks blew up. It's because it was- Oh my gosh, yeah. And why the Starbucks culture in L.A. is totally different than anywhere else. You know, when I came from New York to L.A., Starbucks was kind of like, ugh. And then you go to L.A. and Starbucks is just a a super acceptable place to go. People hang out there. That was something that always shocked me. Like there's a pretty pretty decently sized Starbucks on Vermont in Los Feliz. And it is always packed with people. Mm -hmm. There's like five locally roasted fancy coffee shops within walking distance of that Starbucks. Yet that Starbucks is always packed for people who are parking it there all day or hanging out with friends. It's so weird to me. You know, it always shocking that people will prefer often, often prefer Starbucks. Um, You know, I mean, coming from New York, you know, you were basically a, you were a sellout or you worked in like, you know, you were, you worked in, um, in the city and there was not really a lot of, other coffee shops around, it's you know? So, it's so weird to me, but that does touch on something. I was reading that female 
chauvinist pig book that I've told you about before that's about raunch culture. I'm like rereading it for the next episode. And a lot of people are like, it's all LA's fault. This is what LA culture is. LA is strippers and juicy and Starbucks and low rise jeans and extensions and tans. And it bums me out because <laughs> like, yes and no, I guess is what my answer to that would be, right? Like the Starbucks is still going strong. There's still plenty of athleisure, but we know so many awesome, stylish, cool people in LA that like there's just one microcosm of these that of the like celebutant hangover, but unfortunately, that's what the whole world thinks LA is, yes. you know? Bums and me out. It's, it's not, but it's perfectly acceptable to go to the Starbucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember when we when we were at Nasty, there was mm-hmm. a Starbucks in the lobby and it was like practically an extension of the office. Yeah. It was, absolutely. I mean, thank God it was there. It really. <laughs> I actually remember someone like, someone got a knife pulled on them down there. Yes. No, they were held hostage. Yes. It was dangerous. Someone was held hostage in there. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Getting off on a, on a Starbucks trend, uh, rant. <laughs> but, you know, so, you know, you would see like Gwyneth with a Starbucks going to yoga and that's kind of what birthed a lot, like yoga and Starbucks and Juicy Couture all at once, you know? Or you see something embarrassing that would go on their kind of wall of shame, like Mariah having a nervous breakdown wearing Juicy Couture. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like you wear it for every occasion. Like people would wear wear it, you know, like, to, to, you know, to like black tie events, essentially. Like it, it could be yeah. anything anywhere. Yeah, more. for sure. The brand blew up um, and, you know, they had so much product. Obviously, I worked at Shop Bob, so I saw tons of it they were notorious for the juicy rhinestone butts those skirts those sheared um uh dresses um they did cashmere sets they even did denim i remember they did this denim that had like your astrological sign on it it did not sell well those sold on sale um we had a whole room at shop bop dedicated to juicy couture and when it caught when it would come in we would have you know we'd announce it and it would just blow out it was the terry cloth and the velour (laughs) the pink and black were the number one sellers but you know we sold all the colors um i remember getting an order in for like half a million dollars worth of juicy couture at at like wholesale um it's just my god and it was a big deal like everyone knew that this order was coming in and like you know we were all hands on deck everyone had to work on unpacking it we all got vouv clicot at the end of all you know working overtime doing this <laughs> unpacking and sorting of juicy couture wow um uh you know so a, co- a combination of things caused the insane juicy phenomena to decline so in 2008 the recession hit and because of that there was a big move away from the ostentatious fashion and you know amanda and i kind of were talking about potentially covering this this swift change and talking about that in a different episode of what that what that did because that was actually a really interesting change how everything Mm -hmm. went minimal but anyway so then there was just this general trend fatigue and oversaturation of just goose juicy everywhere and it took its toll on juicy and they saw sales slow substantially you know celebrities stopped wearing it except paris always wore it um, but you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't as cool. Um, they sold the company and by 2014, the sets were actually sold at Kohl's. 
Do you remember that? Oh my gosh, I had forgotten about that. Wow. I feel like they were probably depressed, you know? Well, they sold the company for millions of dollars. Mm. Okay, so they and, were fine. Everything was fine. I mean, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but they actually started up another brand called Pan and Gila, you know, that does pretty well. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we have seen a resurgence in Juicy Couture, Vetmont, who loves to resuscitate old brands, did a collab in 2018 with the Vetmont logo in rhinestones on a black Juicy Couture set. Parade just did a collab. Parade, you know, the really mm-hmm. cool, affordable panties. Um, so Gen Z is picking up the scent and the brand is making a really big comeback. And I was looking online and their sets, they sell them in sets. Um, it looks like mostly only smaller sizes are available. Wow. And they're pretty much all sold out of, of the really blingy versions, which means obviously Maximal is in again. Yeah. Um, there's a new brand called Suzy Kondo. I guess it's it's sort of new. It's been around since 2018. And they are reinventing the velour jumpsuit for the Gen Z set. Um, page six reports um, for the launch of her new Skims velour collection in October of last year, Kim Kardashian tapped her friend and former boss Paris Hilton to pause for a series of paparazzi style photos in the plush pieces. Both of them even bringing back their old flip phones and Louis Vuitton monogram (laughs) beer Alma bags. Oh my gosh. The pair were frequently spotted wearing Juicy Couture's velour track suits while shopping at Kitson or lunching at the Ivy back in the day. And for Kardashian in Paris, the look never actually went out of style. Um, mind you, it's pretty much all sold out and on waitlist now. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then Pam and Gila, the brand founders of Juicy Couture, who launched their line um, after selling Juicy Couture called Pam, um, it's called Pam and Gila. They just, I think actually one week ago, launched their own velours based on the original Juicy and Black, and you get it, Millennial Pink. Of course. Slightly updated, but very similar. And now Juicy Couture themselves um, has a 25th anniversary collection and it is blinged out. The main line itself is very logo heavy, which makes me think that the logo itself has found a new batch of interest um, in its ironic aughts appeal, um, while old fans are also wanting to embrace some nostalgia. The Juicy Couture website is kind of clunky and gross, but... um, you know, I have a feeling that they'll be putting a lot more money behind the brand now that it's starting to trend again. You know, like Rihanna was just seen wearing Juicy Couture again, you know, like it's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> um, So I'm just moving into one more brand that was a Kitson regular, which is Uggs. Also a brand did not wear. And I'm sure, Amanda, you did not wear nor want to wear. Oh, God, no. But we even, I mean... I remember, you know, it's interesting to think about what we sold at Urban at that point and what we didn't, because for the most part, we were chasing the hipster trends, but there would be certain things that we would carry that were more this style that would just blow out. And we had like fake Uggs that sold constantly and Von Dutch hats and our own version of juicy tracksuits. But then all these like hipster clothes too. It's really interesting. Did they sell? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, at that point, I think Urban could have 
just started printing their own money because everything sold. It was crazy. Uh, well, Uggs, obviously, it was another brand that was scooped up and worn everywhere by everyone, except for us, obviously. Um, the original the original Australian sheepskin boot was actually popularized by Australian surfers, you know, in like the 70s and 80s, um, and eventually made their way to American surfers in the mid-90s. So this Australian by the name of Brian Smith came to Venice in the 90s and immersed himself in the American surf culture. Um, and he brought with him these sheepskin boots because he said that nobody was wearing them. And, um, you know, the sheepskin boot, boot was just so common for Aussie surfers. He saw a potential in the marketplace. He was, you know, he he was looking for a business, you know, and he was seeing this like little open slot. Um, and the Aussie surfers wore these to the beach and they were called Uggs because they were considered ugly. <laughs> it wasn't a brand name, but, you know, they were not particularly fashionable. In fact, they was kind of gauche. And one of the, only the frumpiest of people would actually wear them on the street. Or if you were a surfer, it was acceptable um, to kick around in because they were especially excellent for drying and warming feet after a day of surfing. Traditionally, these boots were sold at gas stations and not known as luxury items in any way. So Brian partnered with an Australian manufacturer and worked on elevating this rather basic product so that the California customer buyers, uh, buyers like uh, retail buyers, would be interested in them. He used top quality hides and adapted the shape and construction and added a rubber sole. And he marketed them as luxury footwear, which actually resonated. The shoes pattern had to be hand cut and each pair is made with over 40 pieces of sheepskin. As opposed to the nearly rudimentary original version. Mm -hmm. So it first gained popularity amongst the surfers, like I said, and then skiers before somehow finding their way to Oprah. And that's all you had to do then. Yep. Find Oprah. If like Oprah. <laughs> yeah. If Oprah liked you, it was done, you know? Yeah. So in 2000, yeah. Oprah declared Uggs one of her favorite things on the Oprah talk show which sealed its fate and drove demand like only an early Oprah stamp of approval could. Uggs also gifted 350 pairs of boots to Oprah's studio audience. Oh, you mean it was like under the seat? Is that where they were? Yeah, yeah. Like, look under your chair. <laughs> I, I don't know if it was under the chair or if it was just like, and you get a pair and you get a pair. She's just like throwing them off the stage. Man, I have like forgotten about Oprah. I mean, I love Oprah, but like the power of Oprah in the aughts. Yes. Like remember her book club? Oh, yes, Oof. absolutely. I mean, it definitely, it made, it made people, it made brands. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it, this catapulted the brand into the public's eye. And pretty soon after that, all of Hollywood, especially the celebutants and starlets began wearing them everywhere. Literally from the grocery store to the red carpet, you could <laughs> not get these people out of their Uggs. And of course, they were in all the gossip rags, literally constantly, constantly being featured. So obviously everyone else wanted them. And I think that they were masters of celebrity gifting, endorsement, and placement. Mm -hmm. They did that from the start. I think they somehow managed to get into Oprah's hands, but then they started gifting to all these celebra celebrities as well. 
So um, before social media, they were able to leverage these celebrity endorsements and actually get placements into stores. Like buyers will buy them because the celebrities were wearing them. And then the demand among celebrities kept growing. So it was just kind of like this, another symbiotic relationship. <laughs> they were the height of conspicuous consumption. The UGG was fairly pricey for the time period. I think if I remember correctly, they were just under $200 and they were the Christmas gift of the aughts. And I would say 80% of the college students in Madison, Wisconsin wore them with like a juicy couture set. And this was during a time period. And I remember just being so disgusted by the way college students dressed. Oh where they would God, just... me too. I was like, can you put some like jeans on? I know. Cause I felt like when I was in school, like you could not go around like that. Like you had to, it was like a fashion show at the dining yeah. hall. And then all of a sudden, like everyone was wearing Uggs and pajamas to like go outside. Yes. <laughs> yes, you look like garbage because that's what the celebrities look like. They looked, it was like the off duty look, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I remember. I remember. <laughs> so unfortunate. We, I remember one year we had these slippers that we sold at Urban, like they were like slippers for in the house, but they look like Uggs, right? Mm-hmm. They did not have a sole on them at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like fabric, right? Because they are slippers. And after Christmas, there was a rash of college girls coming in with these, once again, I just want to reiterate, slippers, slippers and returning them because they were like, I wore them out in the snow and they got totally ruined. And I was like, well, they're slippers. And they're like, what? And I'm like, they're slippers. Like, what? And I'm like, no, look, there's no sole on the bottom. What? And I was like, okay, here's your $20. Please don't come back. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Uh, Yeah, they're so used to wearing Uggs that that are kind of like a slipper. Kim, these did not have a soul on no, them. No, exactly. They didn't have a soul. Like, and I just the, don't think there's, like, uh, customer education around what footwear what. It fills me with this, like, new bias. Like, these people who are wearing Uggs and pajama pants anywhere, they're also, like, stupid. And I know that's not true, but, like, oh. retail was, like, poisoning my brain against these people. <laughs> Like there need to be a disclaimer that this is not an outdoor shoe. Um, guess what? The next year I was working at the home office in shoes, and I will tell you, we put a tag on them. <laughs> it was my idea. I was like, you know what? Because they think they're shoes. And everybody was like, No, no, they don't. And I'm like, no, they do. And I pulled like the return data for them, and everybody was like, Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> That's actually hilarious. <laughs> you took it from the floor to the office and you just, you changed the way that it was sold. I changed it all, guys. <laughs> and we probably reduced the return rates, you know? I know. I, but everyone was like, why would someone wear these outside? They're obviously slippers. And I was like, right? No. At least people finally get it. I'm surrounded by people who get it. Uh. <laughs> anyway yeah um well so we uh we did sell uggs at shop up i remember when we got them people were like oh my god we're getting uggs how exciting you know we weren't it wasn't like we were on the forefront of uggs um but you know they weren't actually major sellers except for around christmas which is why i said they were really big christmas gifts um, oh that makes sense to me totally but um you know 
the major sellers were Seven Jeans and Juicy Couture. Like that was just the the just mass. I would say 30, 40% of the sales. I, I mean, I don't know what the, the numbers are, but I, you know, I definitely picked and packed and unpacked. I, I saw a lot. I mean, C&C was also really big too. And we're going to talk about, you know, the knitwear trend in another episode, um, which was just massive. But anyway, post-recession, Uggs and their popularity really kind of dropped off and sales substantially dropped. By the end of the aughts, the Lululemon Ugg North Face jacket girl came out of the basic broom closet and that look, as well as the Uggs, lost the luxury shine. Like you did not want to look like that anymore. (laughs) No, no, definitely not. Mm -hmm. People started wearing different like real shoes again. Mm Real shoes. Uh, yeah, the yoga pants stayed. Real shoes came back at full force. And sneakers. I think that was kind of when sneakers started coming in. And a few years later, the Lita. Oh, gosh. Then everyone started wearing the heel. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the boom of ugly shoes and a dash of collab nostalgia. In 2017, Jeremy Scott did his infamous Ugg Life collab, um, which was Uggs that had, you know, uh, rhinestones on them that said Ugg and life on each one. (laughs) Y Project offered these insane maximal thigh high Uggs in 2018. And then Rihanna dug them out of her closet in 2018 and began to be spotted wearing them around again. So yes, much like Juicy, we're certainly seeing Ugg life return, particularly in the past year. There was actually an article that I read about the return of the Ugg on the Today's Show website. So <laughs> I know, I mean, I, I definitely had to, to to do some weird scrounging to find a lot of information. You know, you, you heard my page six reference. Um, so Shakela. Forbes Bell, who is a fashion psychologist for financial service Afterpay, says the pandemic has caused a shift in the way we look at clothing from how does this look to how does this make me feel? So it's understandable why people have turned to comfort shoes like Uggs to help them navigate mm-hmm. a cult. I actually thought that's such a brilliant way to, you know, to talk I about. I think so too. Yeah. How does this look to how does this make me feel? Um, yeah, so people have turned to to Uggs to help them navigate difficulties of the current climate. Um, you know, Ugg has actually held the number two spots for non-active sneaker-focused brands in terms of dollar volume growth during the pandemic. Uh, Kelly Hawes, a professor of marketing at Vanderbilt University, throws on value-added nostalgia to the list, saying, times of uncertainty often drive us towards products that provide comfort and even nostalgia. Although the UGG brand has worked hard to extend its product lines and refresh its brands, ultimately, the brand is associated with warmth, comfort, and durability. Add to the turbulence, uncertainty, casual wear of the home office of 2020 and the changing seasons, and you have a recipe custom made for increased demand for Uggs. So I was on their website again doing some research. And Amanda, do you remember at the start of actually this podcast, the department, like episode one or something, we talked about some really cute Ugg house slippers. And man, they have some really good ones. 
Like they do. There's a couple that I'm very intrigued oh, by. Yes. Like just comfort core maximalism. They're super surprisingly addictive. Like they really know what they're doing. Um, so if you're looking for a house shoe, go to Uggs. We, you know, we will definitely, co- you know, condone that purchase if you, you know, <laughs> if you so desire. Um, yeah. I- yeah, they have they have some really cute ones and really amazing colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, you should definitely go check them out just to see the latest in slipper technology <laughs> <laughs> and why they're in that number two spot. Yeah, yeah, it makes. I mean, I feel like just looking at them makes my feet feel comfortable. Yeah, exactly. you know, uh, we're we're not talking about the actual like a classic UGG slipper. We're talking about no, the, no, no. It's like. Slippers. Their slipper game is on fire. Mm -hmm. It's really, really good. It's really, really good. Well, the celebutants made their personal style major fashion trends, kind of defining, like I said, for better or worse, the rest of the world's concept of LA style and Starbucks, Mm -hmm. I guess, Mm -hmm. for well more than a decade. And I, I would say I still meet people who think that that's how people in LA dress. And I'm like, where have you been? (laughs) Right. But okay. And while all these celebutants had reality shows and mainstream magazines to amplify their celebrity and their style, they also had another outlet that ensured millions of people were reading their names every day, the rise of the gossip blog. Yes. This was the early, I mean, this was still a pretty early time for the internet, but most people were using the internet on a daily basis in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to remember, you needed a computer to do that. Because phones didn't have internet. Yeah. I mean, I remember I used the computer. I worked at the law library. And so I would use the computer there. But I had a computer at home, but it wasn't like linked up to the internet. So you could basically <laughs> just, you, yeah, I just used it for like word processing, you know, writing. I remember my, my one big splurge was that I had internet at my house. Whoa. Like It was like my only window into the world, you know, like, cause I was like, I don't have a television. I don't have cable. The gossip blogs were different from the mainstream gossip mags, like us weekly and people, because they were like ruthless. And remember yes. this was the dawn of the internet. So there were like no rules. Yeah. You could write whatever you wanted. Wild, wild west. <laughs> yeah. You could, write, you could do whatever you wanted on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like that was that, you know, they didn't have to say much on their site to bring in people. They didn't have to verify anything. And most importantly, they didn't even have to have like a good visual aesthetic. Yeah. Now, I think ultimately most of these celebutants hated the gossip blogs because they were ruthless and cruel. And I mean, they were just, it fueled this need for paparazzi everywhere all the time and to like trust no one, Right. But there was also a weird symbiotic relationship like there are with a lot of these things. The paparazzi could chill outside Kitson to get photos with the celebrities who shop there. And the celebs would usually stop to pose for a photo of two. And Kitson would support that, right? Like Kitson would be like, come in. You have a credit for this. Come and use it and get photographed with our stuff. So it was it was a good time for all of them, right? There were a lot of gossip blogs out there of all varieties, but the two main ones that I know of at the time were Defamer, which was part of the now defunct Gawker empire. Mm. Defamer was a little classier, all right? And then there was Perez Hilton. I know. Uh, Perez Hilton, for me, was iconic of the early aughts for 
many yeah. reasons. So many reasons. First off, the garish Barbie pink aesthetic. So Kim, I tried really, really hard to find an early aughts version of the homepage and I just couldn't find it. So the one I, I've shared here in our deck is from like 2010 when it looked a little bit better and yet it still looks like garbage. Yeah. <laughs> right. It um, does. It look it's celebrity juice, not from concentrate. Yeah, I mean, just what garbage is that? And it's all like Barbie pink and did per obviously Perez Hilton came from Paris Hilton and the pink yes. came from Paris Hilton? Yes, yes. Okay. He had, and we'll talk about it a little bit here, but his relationship or feelings about celebrities are like really, really complicated. Like, I I mean, I don't think he's aware of that, but like as an outsider, especially looking you know, having hindsight is twenty twenty. I'm like, wow. I feel like he worshipped these people, and if they didn't give him the attention he wanted, the backlash was uh -huh. brutal. And it seems, for the most part, his worship of Paris never went away, mm -hmm. and that he mostly, for the most part, was nice about her. So she played the game correctly with him. Yeah, he he himself even had Barbie pink hair. Mm -hmm. uh, the writing like the copy, if you will, on the site was just dumb and cruel garbage, maybe 10 <laughs> sentences per post. And his signature move, which I touched on in our last episode, was using MS Paint. I don't know if that even exists anymore. Oh my gosh, yes, MS Paint. Right, right. So That's what he would use to scrawl words or more often ejaculating dicks on the images yes. of the celebrities he was discussing. That's so true. Things like I miss rehab or walk of shame. Yeah, it's so gross. It's so gross. He loved picking apart the bodies of young starlets like Misha Barton and Kirsten Dunst. I remember he called Misha Musha, and he was always accusing Kirsten of being drunk and fat. He loved to scour the internet for like the most unflattering photos of them and like circle where he felt that he saw cellulite on them. I mean, he hated specific ones. Like he really, really, really did. Kirsten Dunst and Misha Barton, I think. He really hated them, yes. And his site was just like this toxic train wreck, like not doing anything good for the world, yet everyone visited it all the time. So Perez Hilton's real name is Mario Lavendera. He is a Cuban-American born in Florida. He started his gossip blog from a cafe near his apartment in L.A. in 2005. And at the time, he couldn't afford to have internet installed at home. He wasn't splurging like I was. So he would use the free Wi-Fi at the coffee bean and tea leaf. It was internet cafes, remember? Uh, <laughs> were internet cafes. I know. I know. Isn't that funny? Uh, he said, quote, I would always sit in the same place because in my entire coffee shop, there was only one power outlet. So I had to sit there to plug in my laptop. I hope they've upgraded since then, he says. Mm. Soon, this recipe of just, oh, just garbage, misery, meanness, well, it was taking off because he was getting 8 million hits a day. People loved his caddy, and I'm going to say this, not always true, posts. They mm -hmm. didn't care if it was true or not. His site was dubbed, quote, the most hated website in Hollywood, at which, wow, of course he loved. So. Yep. Word got out that he was running that entire operation from the coffee bean and tea leaf. And before oh long, celebrities like Lindsay Lohan and Amanda Bynes were dropping in to feed him stories, no. which is interesting to me because I always felt like 
he he only medium hated those two. Actually, I guess they weren't his least favorite. I thought he uh, didn't like Lindsay. He I guess was it back depended. And forth on it. Yeah, it depended. Yeah. Other celebrities like Nicole Richie would show up to confront him about being so nasty. <laughs> At his peak, he was making some money. Let me tell you. Now these prices are going to sound so low by 2021 internet is everywhere standards, but it was 9,000 a week for a single ad and $45,000 for the most expensive ad package on his garbage looking website. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And at any time, one of the starlets he loved to hate got into some sort of legal trouble I'm looking at you, Lindsay Lohan. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He was like the default expert called to appear on the talk show and entertainment <sighs> show circuits. So you'd get paid. That's hilarious. I know. I know. I found he's this like, article. Commenter. He's like, <laughs> he's like the professional. Isn't that hilarious? Oh. I found a New York Times article, and I want to say it was from like 2007, and. At that point, Lindsay Lohan had just been arrested again. And he was like, oh, I've just been so busy because I've been doing all these shows this week to talk about Lindsay. Like, he was living the life. But like I said, it's interesting that he was legitimate enough to be on all these TV shows because he was also really, really cruel. And if he hated you, you would find yourself being shit-talked with ejaculating dicks drawn all over your photos Every day on the blog, he said at that time, I'm like Madonna. I'm not afraid to offend. But he was offending people. He definitely had those that he loved. And I remember this so clearly, like Jennifer Lopez, Angelina Jolie, and Dita Von Teese. And he would like post just like worshipful things about those three. But then he had those that he hated. He really hated Sienna Miller. Who I don't even know if it's famous anymore, but he was constantly talking shit about her. Misha Barton, poor Misha Barton. Yeah. Kirsten Dunst, mm-hmm. Lindsay Lohan. He called them sluts. He accused mm-hmm. them of being on drugs or being too fat or having eating disorders or just being spoiled brats. He was brutal. I remember specifically... I'm trying to remember here. He thought Sienna Miller was a slut. I remember that was what he was always talking about. He was always saying that Misha was fat secretly. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Kirsten, he was like, she's an alcoholic who needs to go to rehab. And, you know, Lindsay Lohan, well, she was writing her own headlines at that point. I mean, she was like, she was going to, to jail for DUIs constantly, which, of course, now, you know, we got Uber and everything. So so that that's all changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, I also... Uh, was remembering just now as we were talking that one of the times that Lindsay got pulled over and she like, or something, and she failed an alcohol test. She said it was because she was drinking kombucha and it resulted in all the kombucha being pulled from the shelves for a few weeks. Do you remember this? Yes. Yes. I remember that. (laughs) Uh, So he also labeled Siri Cruz, who was a child and Victoria Beckham, he said they were both aliens, and he would draw antenna on every photo of them. Mila, I know, right? Mila Kunis said, quote, to me, he was the first person that created ugly news that literally just spread yeah. filth. It was just mean, and so it allowed people to be mean. She suggests that the, quote, whole concept of trolling really didn't oh exist gosh. prior to his blog. And you know what? I think there's something to that. Yeah. Because it made it okay to be just nasty on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like, 
just describing this blog to you out loud, it's like, I'm almost like, wait, did that really exist? Was there really a super famous celebrity blog where a guy would use MS paint to draw ejaculating dicks on pictures? Like what? <laughs> I mean, imagine in, imagine now if that existed, you I know, that would have torn apart. Oh my God. So he's had, oh man, all kinds of crazy things happen. For one, he actually had a defamation suit brought against him in 2007 by DJ Samantha Ronson. Remember her? That was another celebrity that he hated, hated her so much. He posted on PerezHilton.com that she had planted cocaine on her good friend Lindsay Lohan's car and then set Lohan up to be photographed while under the influence of alcohol and drugs. What? He also, and maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, but he was frequently accusing Samantha and Lindsay of being lovers. So there was- Oh my God, I can imagine. I know, which brings me to another really weird thing about this blog that I'm remembering now. Perez Hilton is a gay man, right? He's like out. Mm -hmm. But he seemed to simultaneously hate celebrities for being gay, but also hate anyone that he suspected was hiding being gay. Yet, like I said, he is a gay man himself. When former NSYNC member Lance Bass came out as gay in 2006, Hilton, he received all kinds of criticism for having been, I guess, partially responsible for the outing because he was just posting about it constantly. And he said, it upsets me that people think I'm doing a bad thing. He told us to access Hollywood. I don't think it's a bad thing. If you know something to be a fact, why not report it? Why is that still taboo? What a dick. He's such a dick. He also for years had been insisting that Neil Patrick Harris was gay, which he is. He eventually came out in 2006, but like this was on Perez Hilton. It's really traumatic. He was also single-handedly responsible for outing American Idol star Clay Aiken, which apparently caused all kinds of problems for him. Yes. Activist Kim Fisera said, quote, I have to question the character of a man who attacks others on such deeply personal levels without provocation and for self-benefit, monetary or otherwise. If he's emotionally incapable of exhibiting even the tiniest bit of compassion for closeted people, if he can't be sensitive to the fact that coming out is a very personal decision Mm -hmm. and that the process can be difficult for some, especially celebrities, I feel sorry for him. If his juvenile behavior is his shtick, I think it makes him a much more pathetic figure and one that gay and lesbian community should not support. If we support behavior like Hilton's, we applaud shallowness, arrogance, rage, and invasion of privacy and risk becoming what we despise. Damn, right? Really well written. Really well written. And like this is – this list of celebrities I'm talking about is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm also remembering now that I – Pretty sure that he also accused Misha Barton pretty regularly of sleeping with other women. Huh. It's not his business, you know? Who cares? So weird. He also has engaged in some other, like, really fucked up shit over the years. For example, on June 25th, 2009, shortly after Michael Jackson had gone into cardiac arrest, Hilton posted an article about Jackson's illness, claiming it was a publicity stunt. Well, guess wow. what? Michael Jackson died. <laughs> It's really fucked up. In 2010, 
he posted a Twitter message linking to an upskirt picture of Miley Cyrus, which allegedly showed the singer without underwear. She was still underage at the time, so questions were raised as to whether or not child pornography charges could be raised against him. Mm-hmm. This one's a random oh. one, and I remember this happening. On August 17th, 2007, citing exclusive sources, Hilton announced the death of Cuban President Fidel Castro and claimed that he was the first media outlet in the world to break the news. Well, unfortunately for Perez Hilton, Castro did not, in fact, die until 2006. Wow. Brenda, Brenda, what are you doing? Sorry, Brenda's like being weird. Hi, Brenda. (laughs) At one point also, Perez Hilton met Ariana Grande about becoming her manager. And this is like when she was still a teenager. She ended up opting for someone else. And so he, for years, proceeded to tear her down on social media. Oh. He was also embroiled in all kinds of other legal issues because it turns out that almost all of the photos that he doodled over were stolen. Yes. Just copied off the internet, which makes sense because one thing I do remember is that they were always really low quality. That's true. And he would pick the worst, most unflattering shots. You know why? Because he was a mean person. Just so mean. Just so Uh rotten. Recently, he published an autobiography. And, well, the good news is no one bought it. No one cares about him. That's awesome. That is awesome. I know. Allegedly, according to him, the Perez Hilton of the 20s is much softer and gentler. And he says, quote, I have a ton of regrets, particularly because I now see that I never needed to be so mean or cruel. One of the many things I regret is that I hurt so many people by giving them nasty nicknames. And above all that, I was unkind to the children of celebrities. He's like Trump. I know, right? Yeah, kind of like a pre-Trump Trump. I don't know what I think about that because I think he has a he's made a lot of people feel really mm-hmm. terrible. You know, he was super brutal to Britney Spears. Do you remember yeah. before her breakdown, but like probably in the same year, she had that terrible MTV performance, mm. like MTV Video Music Awards performance. It was just like a mess. And he was just like, she should be ashamed oh. of herself. I don't know how she keeps living, blah, blah, blah. We know now that she was experiencing an incredible mental breakdown. Yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, there was like, I, I don't know if you, I, I sent you this, like, um, it was like YouTube of all, it was like, I, I didn't realize how long it was. I think it was something like an hour of all these clips, <laughs> <laughs> all these clips of, that were famous in the, in the two thousands. And one was like, um, it was a interview that she did where she was crying about the paparazzi and how she just wants to be left alone. And like, and basically that is causing her break. Yeah, for a lot of them it was. I have been listening to a lot of different podcasts recently, and I don't know if it's because people are having this like 2000s nostalgia or what, but the recurring theme is that this was a really horrible time to be a young woman in the first place, but it was an exceptionally terrible time to be a young, famous woman because the paparazzi was brutal. You have Perez Hilton making or breaking your career in this really weird way. Meanwhile, he's just a troll sitting at the coffee bean and tea leaf, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. so insane. And like the pressure was so bad. You look back now and you're like, of course, Lindsay Lohan lost her shit. Of course, Brittany had a nervous breakdown. 
of course, Brittany yes. Murphy died. You know, like it's yeah. is and like, Anna Nicole Smith. Yes, and and then that was another one where he would just be merciless with her. Mm-hmm. She obviously was struggling with addic- addiction, among other things. Yeah. I mean, it just exactly. it was what a garbage blog, you know. And I think, yeah. like Mila Kunis says, I think he made internet bullying a mainstream hobby, mm-hmm. and that legacy lives now as we see trolling. I think picking up a ton of momentum during the pandemic because people were fucking bored and angry. Uh-huh. I, have you been trolled recently? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's just one of those things now where I just delete and block the person. I don't engage. There's no talking to this person. I had a friend reach out to me last week about how people were trolling on her, sh- on her stores, Instagram and how like, She's limited mm. comments then to like only followers. So then people were following her just to say nasty stuff on her Instagram. But like, why? Yeah. You know, like who cares? She's still on the Get out of there. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much negativity in the world. Like go do something else with yourself. Like do something positive. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I mean, there's, there's just, yeah, I, I think we can thank Perez Hilton for this. I also think people are Thanks. mean, you know, but people are mean and they they like they like to see they like to see people have downfalls. They like to see mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Get, get torn apart. They love to see their celebrities, rich, famous people, you know, people that have it all, you know. So they like to see that they don't have it all or, you know, get made fun of. And it just it's like a fuel for negativity that just I think it is. You know, I think and I, human nature, and, unfortunately. And I think a lot of the reality TV of now also gives that to people because ostensibly all the people in these shows are wealthy. They're all like messed up. They all have beef. They're angry. Yeah. They're drunk. They're getting weird plastic surgery. Yeah. This is what people want to see. And I I don't want to see that, you know? Well, me either. <laughs> Exactly. I don't want to see that. I want to see like um, a, a murder documentary, though, <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> I would love those, you know. But yeah, the last thing I want to see is a reality show. No, I don't do. want to see people being mean to each other. Like, there's enough. No that. judgment. If no judgment, if right. you love I watching know that this. people love that, and it pulls different levers in different people's brains. You know, I grew up in a household. That was very unloving and cruel. And so I don't need to have that in my adult life, I guess. I don't, if I wanted to hear people say mean things to one another, I could just like sit down and remember some old times, you know? <laughs> so I'm good. Oh, I'm we good. have childhood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that concludes the end of our episode today. Yeah. And we've got a lot more coming on 2000s. Trends. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, do not. Worry. It was so fascinating <laughs> to work on this one alone, and it's already made me think of all these other things. There's so much to talk about. I, I mean, I'm going to say this. That decade experienced mm-hmm. some of the biggest cultural shifts that have ever happened in like, the history of mankind, basically, because we technology just changed mm-hmm. everything really fast. Cell phones and social media mm-hmm. and, and, and internet. Yeah. I mean, all of it. Yeah, it's just a huge Absolutely. change. Um, well, I guess that's it. So we'll be back next week. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.